0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today, we are going to talk about the Honey War. This is a dispute that was fortunately not really a war. It led to zero human casualties and it wasn't particularly over honey (laughs) either. Uh, but it's a story that's full of silliness and pride and obstinacy and bureaucracy, and it's kind of a goofy story of a weird land dispute. <laughs> I felt like we needed something to lighten the load up a little bit, so... Similarly to the time that we did the one about popsicle and good humor suing each other a lot. Yeah. This one is about Missouri and Iowa bickering over where their border was. I had hoped it was going to be about Winnie the Pooh
1: arguing with Rabbit, but it's not. It, it comes <laughs> off a little like that, though.
0: Uh, it's also a listener request from Amy, and I know other people have requested it also, but it's one of those things where the name is so memorable that, uh, I didn't, I didn't write down any of the other people besides Amy who asked for it. So, as Tracy
1: mentioned, the Honey War was a dispute between Missouri and Iowa in the 1830s, before Iowa officially became a state. Missouri had been granted U.S. statehood on August 10th of 1821, and the setting of Missouri's northern border when it became a state was at the heart of the Honey War.
0: Missouri's acceptance into the Union was kind of a complicated matter because it wanted to join the Union as a slave state. At that point, the United States had 11 free states and 11 slave states. So there was an equal power balance between the slave states and the free states in Congress. A 12th slave state would have tipped the balance of power in favor of the slave states, which most of the free states and the federal government were just not willing to allow.
1: So if Missouri was going to join the Union, a free state needed to join the Union as well. And the free state in question worked out to be Maine, which had previously been part of Massachusetts before its residents voted to separate from Massachusetts on July 26th of 1819.
0: Let's note that Maine and Missouri were basically admitted into the Union as a slave state-free state pair, with Maine being admitted as a free state on March 15th of 1820, and then Missouri being admitted as a slave state on August 10th of 1821. Also part of this deal, which is known as the Missouri Compromise, Latitude 36 degrees, 30 minutes, which was Missouri's southern border, was marked as the border between where slavery would be allowed and where it wouldn't. Until the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, new states that were south of Missouri's southern border would be slave states, and new states that were north of that line would be free.
1: This was all part of the nation's ongoing efforts to simultaneously keep slave states happy while preventing them from becoming more powerful than the free states, which is why you'll sometimes hear agreements like the Missouri Compromise referred to as appeasements and not compromises.
0: Yeah, what the North actually got out of this was not going to war (laughs) in most cases. Missouri's northern border, which it would eventually share with Iowa, had been marked out by surveyor John C. Sullivan in 1816 after Missouri's first petition to Congress to become a state. Sullivan was a government-appointed surveyor, and the boundaries that he was delineating were between the soon-to-be-created state of Missouri and the Osage Nation, which had ceded that land to the United States in 1808 at the Treaty of Fort Clark. This treaty is one of many that was weighted heavily in favor of the United States, And the Osage Nation had definitely agreed to it under duress and gotten very little compensation for the land itself.
1: Sullivan's work was, to be quite frank, full of errors. He had one job. It was basically to draw a straight line across the state, 100 miles north of the confluence of the Kansas and Missouri rivers. This line would stretch across the state to the Des Moines River. This was both a physical boundary on the ground and a line drawn on a map.
0: The first thing he did wrong was basically to forget how to use a compass. Whoops. (laughs) He neglected to take into account that a compass needle points to the planet's magnetic north pole, not true north. So his measurements on the ground where he was relying on incorrect compass readings didn't correspond to the line that he drew on the map.
1: He also marked the boundary itself by pulling up mounds of dirt as he went. Some accounts uh, indicate that he used posts, but the most scholarly of all the sources used for today's show say, no, it was mounds of earth. It was not posts. Uh, as we just talked about in our podcast on the schoolhouse blizzard, the weather in the American Midwest can be unpredictable and prone to extremes. So piles of dirt cannot really be expected to hold up to things like wind and rain and melting snow.
0: And even if it was posts, they were like small wooden posts at best, and that also would not have held up very well with these kinds of weather factors. This meant that between 1816, when Sullivan marked the boundary, and 1820, when Missouri actually officially became a state, the physical markers of the state's northern border, which was known as the Sullivan Line or the Indian Line, were basically destroyed. The official description of where the border lay was that it it was a parallel which quote, passed through the rapids of the Des Moines River. Number one, that's not a lot of very precise detail about where this line was. Number two, the rapids he was talking about were not on the Des Moines River. They were on the Mississippi River. Oh, Sullivan. Uh, In 1837,
1: 17 years after Missouri became a state, another surveyor resurveyed the state's northern border to try to correct the errors in the Sullivan line. This new survey was also meant to remark the now completely unmarked border with more durable markers. The governor, Lilburn W. Boggs, commissioned Joseph C. Brown to do this work.
0: It's a little unclear whether he ordered Brown to find and remark Sullivan's boundary or to start from scratch. But regardless, what he did was start by trying to find the rapids that Sullivan had described in his original survey. Problem was, there were really not any rapids in this part of the river, and as we know, it's because he apparently said Des Moines River when he meant Mississippi River. So not knowing that, Brown made the call to start out with some slightly rippling water he managed to find, which was 63 miles away from the mouth of the Des Moines River. With that as a starting
1: point, Brown resurveyed the border, ending up with a line that was between 9 and 13 miles north of Sullivan's line because while it was supposed to run along a parallel, it wasn't actually parallel. As a result, there were now two possible locations for Missouri's northern border, the Sullivan Line to the south and the Brown Line to the north.
0: So we've said that this was, this was a dispute between Missouri and Iowa, and it was. But at this point, Iowa was part of Wisconsin territory. With this confusion about the two lines, Wisconsin asked the federal government to officially declare which border was the right one. But Congress didn't elect to do so until Iowa actually became its own territory, separate from Wisconsin, on June 12, 1838.
1: Congress did not accept either the Brown Line or the Sullivan Line as the true northern border of Missouri, though. It instead established a three-member commission to sort the whole thing out, with the federal government, Iowa, and Missouri each appointing one member of the commission. Each member was supposed to survey the line again and report back to the commissioner of the general land office.
0: However, only two of the three member commission actually showed up to do this work. One was from the federal government. One was appointed by Iowa. This was because Governor Boggs of Missouri refused to participate in this exercise. I have to say it sounds like the like a pretty good solution. <laughs> Doesn't that seem like a balanced, pretty yeah, fair way to approach the, three the problem? Of you, get together, work it out. There's a the running theme in this whole story of get together, work it out, be grown ups. <laughs> No. asking too much. Uh, so
1: the these two surveyors that did show up worked together through much of the fall of 1838. But in the end, they didn't actually choose between the Brown and Sullivan lines. Instead, they
0: came up with four options for Missouri's northern border. From north to south, they were, number one, the Brown line, which Missouri claimed was the correct boundary. Number two, the line Sullivan had incorrectly marked in 1816 as it was incorrectly marked, which the commission really thought was a fair and reasonable place to put it. Number three was the corrected Sullivan line, as it should have been if Sullivan had done his job correctly. And then number four was Iowa's preferred location of the border, which was sort of an unmarked hypothetical line where the Brown line would have been if it had started with the actual rapids on the Mississippi River from Sullivan's original survey, not the slightly rippling water on the Des Moines River from Brown's later survey.
1: Obviously, Missouri's preference of the Brown line gave it more territory and Iowa less. And Iowa's preferred line gave it more territory
0: and Missouri less. The official report to the Commissioner of the General Land Office supposed that the Sullivan line, as it had originally been incorrectly marked, would probably be acceptable to both Missouri and Iowa. Albert Miller Lee, who wrote the report, didn't really think the correct version of that line was legal or equitable. I mean, at this point, it was a line that existed in theory, but nobody had ever used it as a border. He also refused to state whether Iowa's preferred line or the brown line was the better border, although Iowa and Missouri clearly both had strong opinions on this issue.
1: Even though it had not elected to send a surveyor to act as part of this team, Missouri made the next move in this bureaucratic back and forth. And we're going to talk about that a bunch
0: after we have a brief word from a sponsor. With the report to the commissioner of the general land office turned in, Missouri declared that its territory extended to the Brown Line, the northernmost of all of these potential boundary lines that we talked about before the break. And then it started sending its taxmen in to start assessing the land between the Sullivan Line and the Brown Line for tax purposes.
1: This almost sounds like a cartoon about bureaucracy at this point, like just <laughs> picturing a bunch of dudes tromping through the same space and pointing to things and grimacing. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it was. Uh, the twelve thousand or so people who were living in this roughly two thousand five hundred acres of land, though mostly thought of themselves as Iowans. They were not at all happy when Missouri tax officials started showing up to assess their property for the purposes of a Missouri tax.
0: The Iowans who were living between the Sullivan and Brown lines got together and they sent a delegation to talk to Iowa Governor Robert Lucas On July 29th, 1839, Governor Lucas issued a proclamation demanding that Missouri stop trying to tax Iowa citizens and basically tell them to get back on their side of the Sullivan line. He also called for Iowa officials in the area to maintain control of the disputed territory, which he felt like was part of Iowa.
1: In August, Governor Boggs of Missouri then issued his own proclamation, basically declaring that it had the right to do whatever it wanted because that land was part of Missouri and not Iowa. In September, Iowa asserted itself once again, insisting that the border stop at the Sullivan line, having apparently given up on the idea of a border even farther to the south.
0: Sheriffs and tax officials from Missouri who went north of the Sullivan line to try to collect taxes or enforce Missouri law were met with anger and derision by the people who were living there who still, as we said before, considered themselves to be Iowan.
1: And as all of this was going on, Someone went into the disputed territory and they cut down three or four hollow trees that honeybees were nesting in. Bee trees were a precious commodity. Honey was expensive, so people who managed to find and harvest from bee trees could really make a tidy profit off of doing so. Beeswax was also really important for candle making and other uses. We've talked about on the podcast before. Candles at one point were very valuable. So unless you happen to stumble onto one, the process of finding a bee tree was also really difficult. You had to track wild bees, sometimes for miles, just to be able to locate these trees. So cutting down multiple bee trees that
0: people already knew about was a big deal. You know there were little boxes that people would use for this whole bee tracking? No! So I saw one at the Woodman Institute Museum in Dover, New Hampshire, which has inspired another Podcast, the one on the Cohico Massacre. Uh-huh. Um, it's basically a little box and you would tempt a bee into there with something sugary. And then when you let the bee out, you would follow it in the direction that it goes because bees usually go back to their hive in a straight line. Right. And so if you lost track, if you lost sight of the bee, you would have to like tempt another bee, tempt another bee and, and start over. Um, or, or. Maybe if you had a really good compass reading, you could just walk in a direction and hope that you got to the right bee. There's a whole,
1: or you could hope that it was a bee from the same hive, and right. that each time you stopped, they were going to lead you closer. <laughs> but you could end up on a really crazy goose chase at You're that point. You're
0: not on a, a weird rabbit hunt to a series of different bee trees. So yeah, there like people had whole methods for tracking bees and like timing how long it took a bee to go from your little box that you made to wherever its mystery hive was and then back. So yeah. Uh, If you think it's probably difficult to track wild bees, yes, <laughs> bees are hard to keep up with. They fly and are small. They don't like to
1: report in. <laughs>
0: no. It's also, I mean, to be really honest, it's kind of unclear who cut down these bee trees. We don't know who cut them down. However, the story is that Missourians cut down the bee trees. Iowans totally knew innately that it was somebody from Missouri. Nobody from Iowa would do that. There are not any court records to support this, but the story is that Iowa then tried this unknown person or persons in absentia and then fined them a dollar and 50 cents. Whether this really happened is kind of unclear, but the story that it had happened spread. So Iowa was furious at Missouri for cutting down the bee trees, and Missouri was furious at Iowa for trying its citizens who were not even present for the trial in a court in which they did not even have any jurisdiction.
1: Sheriff Gregory, who was one of the Missourians who had previously tried to enforce the law north of the Sullivan Line, made another trip across that line to try to collect taxes. He was arrested and jailed by an Iowa sheriff. And his disappearance led some Missourians to believe that he had been kidnapped, which is when Governor Boggs called in the militia. This is all like such a terrible
0: (laughs) telephony gossipy schoolyard situation at this point. Meanwhile, in Iowa, the Legislative Assembly passed a resolution in November insisting that the two governors meet and work it out between themselves. Governor Governor Lucas, who was the governor of Iowa, on the other hand, he vetoed that resolution and said that it was the United States that needed to do the working out and not the individual states themselves. So then on November 23rd, 1839, Governor Lucas ordered uh, General David Willock and General O.H. Allen to form a militia as well for the purpose of resisting Missouri.
1: It is completely unclear exactly how large either of these militias were. Estimates for both are all over the map, from the hundreds to the thousands. However, the general consensus is that Missouri's militia was bigger than Iowa's. And Iowa's wasn't really mustered until this was all pretty much over.
0: Both militias were also pretty ragtag. The men were responsible for their own weapons, which meant that they were full of assorted odds and ends, some of them dating all the way back to the War of 1812. Some of the stranger weapons that have been noted on the Iowa side of this conflict included a six-foot-long sword that was cut out of a piece of metal, a dasher from a butter churn, that's the thing that you churn up and down to make butter, and a sausage stuffer. (laughs) Even though tensions
1: had been high among the Iowans actually living in the disputed territory, most of the men in the militia weren't local to that little strip of land and they didn't really care. Most had joined up because it was winter and they needed the money, which meant that morale was poor and desertions were many.
0: The Missouri militia, on the other hand, was so poorly provisioned that at one point it resorted to robbing a store to get food and blankets. Eventually, Thomas
1: A. Anderson of Missouri did what seems like the only sensible thing in this story so far. He advocated for a Missouri-Iowa commission to be formed to work this whole thing out. In his words, quote, In the name of God of mercy and justice, gentlemen, let this monumental piece of absurdity, this monumental but cruel blundering, have an end.
0: Someone. It's not entirely clear who, since both Missouri and Iowa claimed that it was them drafted a resolution on December 12, 1839, requesting that both governors step away from this issue and for real, hand it over to the federal government. Basically, kids, stop fighting, give it to mom and dad. At last, the two states agreed to do so, which put an end to the need for militia on either side. While the Iowa
1: militia didn't particularly care about the conflict in play, the Missouri militia was apparently angry that their opportunity to fight had been taken away from them. They split a side of venison into two halves, named each one after one of the respective governors, and shot them both to bits.
0: And then both militias eventually disbanded and went home. I'm so angry. <laughs> they were so angry they shot up a deer carcass. Oh. Apparently they buried it afterward with like a very, uh, like very formal Serious funeral. As you do.
1: After you've had a weird tantrumy shootout <laughs> with a deer carcass. Uh, after all this odd back and forth, the federal government finally did get involved and we're going to talk about that after we have a word from one of our fabulous sponsors.
0: So we've mentioned on the show that I am getting married. Mazel! <laughs> The only reason I sounded uncertain about that is because, as it turns out, planning a wedding, even when you are diverging from a lot of, like, the, quote, traditional wedding staples, it's a lot of work, and it can be very stressful. And the one thing that has been a completely stress-free, easy, intuitive experience was actually making my wedding website, which I did at Squarespace.com. Excellent. So... Here's what's awesome about Squarespace.com. Number one, there's lots of templates that you can choose from. They are all very easy to use, and you get a result that looks professionally designed, no matter what your skill level is. I have very little coding experience beyond extremely basic HTML tags, and I was able to get a look for the website that is I was really happy with. Uh, It's very intuitive, very easy-use tools, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a whole year. So start your free trial today at Squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, you should. Even though both states had agreed on a resolution to have Congress settle the issue of where their border should be, Governor Boggs, the same man who had refused to participate in the commission to resurvey the border, also refused to cooperate with the federal government. This pitted Iowa and Missouri against one another in Congress for the next six years. There
1: was also more at stake in this boundary issue than just bee trees and hurt feelings. If The Missouri boundary was moved north. The territory where slavery was allowed would also move north. This would put Iowans who thought they were living in a free state instead in a slave state. And many of them considered
0: this idea to be absolutely abhorrent. In the middle of all this, Iowa became an actual state on December 28, 1846. Florida, a slave state, had been admitted to the Union in 1845, so that once again maintained the 50-50 slave state-free state split.
1: Finally, after Iowa had become a state, Congress suggested Iowa and Missouri turn it over to the Supreme Court for a definitive answer. The suit was brought before the court in 1847, and in the words of the court, quote, a great mass of evidence was taken on both sides. This evidence included a number of smaller shifts and ceded land that we did not go into in this
0: podcast. Yeah, you, if you, the whole court opinion exists on the Internet, you can read it <laughs> uh, and read how exasperated that it sounds. Justice John Catron, speaking for the court, delivered the court's opinion on April 6th, 1849. It said, among other things, quote, And this court doth therefore see proper to decree and doth accordingly order a judge and decree that the true and proper northern boundary line of the state of Missouri and the true southern boundary of the state of Iowa is the line run and marked in 1816 by John C. Sullivan as the Indian boundary from the northwest corner made by said Sullivan, extending eastwardly as he ran and marked the said line to the middle of the Des Moines River and that a line due west from said northwest corner to the middle of the Missouri River is the proper dividing line between said states west of the aforesaid corner, and that the states of Missouri and Iowa are bound to conform their jurisdictions up to said line on their respective sides thereof from the River Des Moines to the River Missouri.
1: In other words, the court ruled that the Sullivan line was the right one, due in part to the many existing treaties with the Osage Nation that used that line as a border, along with the Missouri State Constitution and other official documents.
0: So I know we've talked about a lot of different lines here. So just to make it totally clear, (laughs) that originally incorrect marked border made with compass readings that were pointing to the magnetic north instead of true north, like that was the one that we went with. And as
1: as I looked at this, I was thinking, so the moral of the story is... Do a bad job (laughs) and that will be fine.
0: (laughs) Uh, And it was also if you if you were you kind of zoned out with all of the kind of weighty language. The court at the end of that little statement we just read also pretty clearly said that Missouri needed to knock it off with its attempts to collect taxes and enforce law north of the Sullivan line. Joseph C. Brown of
1: Missouri and Henry B. Hendershot of Iowa were appointed to work together to find the Sullivan Line and mark it for real this time, not with tiny sticks or mounds of dirt. (laughs) They used cast iron pillars, four feet six inches tall, marked with Iowa on one side and Missouri on the other and state line down the sides. One was placed every 10 miles and Missouri and Iowa split the cost of this endeavor.
0: uh, That's so... There's so much detail that is in there about like having the state's names marked on each side. It, I know, I know, I know we have lots of listeners in both of these states and I'm sure everyone is proud of their states. It is still extremely funny, this whole situation. And it really reminds me of when parents mark the line down quarrely, cho- quarreling children's bedrooms with tape. Yeah, uh, that was a happy days episode
1: too, <laughs> I think.
0: <laughs> uh, and I am going to be totally candid here as I was, as I was, as I was looking for, uh, were a topic for today's episode, I, I nearly landed on a similarly squabbly back and forth kind of childish uh, uh, incident from the history of my home state, which is North Carolina. So this is everywhere. Yeah, we're not, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to rip on Iowa and, Iowa and Missouri.
1: I bet every state has some equally absurd event in its history. There are quite a lot
0: of them. Yeah. Uh, sadly... To get back to this resurveying and marking of the line with people's names on or with the state's names on each side. Uh, Brown actually died before this work was complete. So Robert W. Wells was appointed as his replacement. In
1: 1896, there was yet another resurvey of this boundary line running from milepost 40 to milepost 60 east. Granite markers were at that point placed every mile along this piece of the boundary.
0: Apparently, even though they used these, uh, cast iron pillars that were four feet six inches tall a piece, uh, which is well over a meter. Yeah. Um, with all of the weather and erosion and the fact that a lot of this is basically in river soil, uh, a lot of these pillars are hard to find even today. They've been covered up by shifting dirt and shifting silt and stuff like that. So. <laughs> Maybe we'll have another argument. Yay. About whose boundary is where. Yay. Uh, except now we can use satellite imaging and all kinds of new things to argue yeah. with. Yeah. Well, and fun. one of, one of the things that I read, uh, I, I, more accurately, one of the things I skimmed as I was looking into this was basically a modern surveyor's uh, article about having, like, looked for this line using, you know, GIS systems and right. stuff like that. So that was pretty cool. Apparently this is a line that still interests people quite a lot. <laughs> do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. I have a completely different answer to the question of uh, why is this Egyptian pharaoh's name presented in two completely different ways from our Unearthed in 2015 episodes. Yes. Um, You may remember recently we read a listener mail from a Non-Egyptologist, but Egypt history enthusiast. Mm-hmm. And today we have one from an Egypt Egyptologist. Hooray! It's from Catherine, and Catherine says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I'm a little late in catching up with your most recent episode, so you may have already gotten an answer to this question. However, just in case you haven't, in your Unearthed in 2015 Part 1 episode, you ladies asked for a knowledgeable Egyptologist to weigh in on the confusion over the spelling of Kentakawe III's husband, n- husband's name, uh, Nefreyfrey or renefref. Uh, while I am no longer an act, an active Egyptologist and far from the most knowledgeable, I can tell you that the wacky anagram switcher you noticed in the spelling of the king's name is the result of honorific transposition, a unique feature of the hieroglyphic, hieroglyphic language. In honorific transposition, the glyphs within a word or sentence are intentionally placed out of phonetic slash grammatical order in order to pay homage to the gods or kings whose names are represented by the glyphs by putting those glyphs first. That means that even though Nefreyfrey's name is spelled with the solar disk ray glyph coming first, it may not necessarily be pronounced with that phonetic value first. This intentional misordering has caused a lot of confusion in modern translations. By convention, all Pharaoh's names spell out words or phrases, often devotionals to different gods. Many Pharaoh's names contain the name of the god Re or Ra, spelled with the reglyph glyph first, but are pronounced with the Re somewhere else in the word. And this is borne out by the grammatical correctness of the phrasing of a particular name. In the Frey name, or, or in the Frey case, his name is an A-B nominal sentence, which essentially means that it can correctly spell out the phrase, his beauty is Ra." nefrefre, or Rey, is his beauty, Renefref. This interchangeability means that it is more ambiguous whether the Rey should be moved to the end of his name or not. This is probably the main reason why there are inconsistencies across different sources. For more detail or just some additional examples, you can take a look at this quick and dirty article I wrote for I'll got a link to that which we will put in our show notes. Keep up the great work on your excellent podcast and let me know if you ever need any other Egyptology advising. And then Catherine sends a an actual image of the hieroglyphic spelling of this pharaoh's name, um, which was meant to be read from top to bottom. I am pretty certain that because of the age of the Egyptian language and the fact that it is so fundamentally different from English... There are probably multiple factors in play, and why these names are also confusing.
1: Yes, and the Egyptian language evolved as well. It wasn't like sure. it stayed static, and we could suss it out. Sort
0: of like how English also has evolved. What? No way, mm, right? <laughs> language isn't alive. <laughs> when we first started working on this podcast, and I had like my very very first list of uh of ideas to talk about on the show. Um, one of the things that I had down was like the great vowel shift, which was basically the English language tilting in the way that it pronounced vowels. Now, there's a lot of weird stuff in the history of the English language. Yeah. And then I decided that was maybe a little too inside baseball for our history podcast. We've <laughs> never done it. Uh, So, yeah, thank you so much, Catherine, for writing us that note. Um, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MissedInHistory and on Twitter at MissedInHistory. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash MissedInHistory. If you've noticed the theme, MissedInHistory, if you're looking for us on social media, that's probably the name that we have picked. Uh, if you would like to learn more about something that we talked a little bit about today, but not as much as I might have liked... You can go to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and put the word bees in the search bar. You will find how bees work. I'm very fond of bees, and I was sad they did not actually have a bigger presence in the Honey War. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have done, an archive of every episode we have ever done. We have handy other things on there, like uh, all the myriad ways to contact us in one handy page. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.